0: Hello and welcome to episode 9 of A's for Architecture, with me, Ambrose Gillick. I'm talking today with the architect, urban designer and activist Robert Adam, whose body of work focuses on vernacular and classical styles and methods. We talk about this, and the role of tradition and authentic voice in our hybrid age.
1: But architects do things that are out there in the community. So, whose traditions are important? Uh, are they your architectural traditions? So if you want to do, win an award for a um, building, make sure it's A got a flat roof and B got glass walls. And if it's a house, make sure it looks like a Barcelona pavilion because you will almost certainly get an award because the architectural community recognizes this. It's this is one of ours. Hmm. So it's part of our traditions, we give an award. So is that important or is, are the traditions of the population into which they're putting it important? Well, I think the answer is obvious, actually. A is for Architecture, a podcast about architecture, buildings, urban culture and space.
0: Hello and welcome again to A is for Architecture. Um, I'm here with uh, Robert Adam. Robert, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Well, I'm Robert Adam. Um, I'm an architect, urban designer, um, sometime author um, and regular lecturer. Um, I'm professor of urban design at the University of Strathclyde and have a a doctorate from Oxford Brooks. I have been in practice since about um, 1975, 1976 I suppose, and effectively created my own firm, which I have now sold my shares of and practice on my own. Um, So I'm still active and still in practice and still writing.
0: Wonderful. Where did you train?
1: I trained at what was then the Regent Street Polytechnic. It was originally the Polytechnic because there weren't any others, um, and originally it was one of the three major London schools at that time. Um, now, University of Westminster.
0: I see. Um, and and um, and who who was who headed it? What was there a, a classical tradition?
1: Not at all, there was absolutely nothing like that at that time whatsoever. I, I came in, I think, it was 1966, and you have to realise that. By about 67, 68, um, it, was, uh, it was revolution time and uh, students were occupying, um, were occupying the, the premises, they were threatening staff uh, and so on and so on. But what was pretty general by that time is that modernism as a type or as, as what one taught and how it was taught was not only universal, but was thought to be the natural order of things um there was no the, the, that time late 60s early 70s there was really no hint at all that it was going to be anything different there was a slight hint um in venturi's work rob venturi uh Complexity and contradiction architecture and if you wanted to appear to be you know really out there when you were carrying your pile of books around you made sure that there was a copy of Complexity and contradiction architecture but at that time and i think they were draft dodgers actually don't forget this is the time of the vietnam Well, a number of american tutors who were very dismissive of of venturi saying he was just an italian american who'd been to rome and was showing off um so there was no inkling whatsoever of traditional architecture or classical architecture mm-hmm. in, in, at all that's quite interesting the so it's
0: something that you you mention you mention in your book as well you speak quite I think, right, very beautifully. So the, the book that you have written recently, which was published in 2020, um, yeah. Time for Architecture on Modernity Memory and Time in Modern Architecture, um, which is a re- really interesting kind of study about some of these, these um, kinds of issues. And you mention this characteristic of, of modernism as being uh, um, yeah a moment of erasure of the past but but clay but laying claim i suppose to 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 a number of the um, to a number of the ideas of classicism at the same time so classicism is inbuilt within the modernist uh, within the modernist tradition did you did you find that and was that your starting point for your journey away from i suppose the 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 um
1: agenda of your school towards Classic. Not really. Um, there was the idea at, at that time that all you needed to do was to come up with, a, you know, the brief and the answer to the brief of the programme. Um, and somehow the, the design would just sort of pop out. And that was mm-hmm. all you needed to do. And it was about, you know, you, you had to follow the function of the building and so on and so on. And eventually the form would dictate. This is clearly nonsense. Um, no, it, it was, um, no, it was. No, it was. I have to say it was probably just well two things. One is uh, most at that time. If you went to an architecture school, generally you came straight from school, mm-hmm. and you were basically brainwashed. You you were told that that, that this was they used the word uh, you were a heavy minority. So the idea that people didn't like what you were doing was completely irrelevant because you knew best. Yeah, um, and uh, you, you were taught this, and you were taught you were a superior superior group. It's cult behaviour really. You you learned how to recognise other people in your cult. You were told that you had a secret other people didn't have and it was their fault they didn't have it and it was your job then to 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 put it over but however i didn't go straight from school i lived in london for a couple of year, a year for a year before that and um i was living with what i would call normal middle-class people i suppose trainee lawyers accountants and so on and i shared a house with them and they saw what i was doing thought it was completely nuts and um i said, well actually Maybe it is, (laughs) maybe this is something one should question. So I just questioned it. And I questioned it towards things that were more familiar, I suppose, and which I thought people might like. Um, uh, And I kept on against huge resistance. I mean, my first three years, actually, it was the way it was structured, it wasn't too bad. I had some very good tutors, actually Hans Henlein and Mike Foster were quite supportive, although I was only experimenting a tiny bit then. But uh, in the last two years, um, when there were these, my my tutor was Rick Mather, actually, uh, who was a rabid, he was a rabid Corbusian. And um, he was, as far as he was concerned, if Corbusier did it, it was all right. And if anyone else did anything else, it wasn't. But he came from the American teaching tradition, really, which was that your professor told you the way it was, and that's what you did. Um, I came from a family background, I suppose, but also the British tradition, I think, is that you have, you, everything is up for debate and everything is up for argument. Yes. Um, and there is, so I just debated and he got really irritated actually got really annoyed. And because as far as he was concerned, he was going to tell me I was going to do it. That was his job. But this is the last two years, you know, post-degree, you, you know, and this is, I, when I saw this, as a fantastic opportunity to experiment and try different things. But we were basically told, no, don't do that. You do what we say. And of course, this is post 68. So actually staff was slightly frightened of students. So there's a very sort of complicated um, issue going on at the time. But I sacked him as a tutor. I mean, he, he actually appeared at one of my crits and said, I, I told Robert to do something different and he didn't do it. So I didn't really care. So I rang him up and said, you're not my tutor anymore. Um, and um, uh, I took on another one uh, um, who said to me, interestingly, a nice man since died. And he said, um, I don't like what you do. Um, but you're the only person doing it, and I think it's important. Um, and um, that kind of nearly got me. They tried to fail me, and I was, I was um, because, I mean, I have to say my traditional work really wasn't very good, because I had absolutely no support. There was no background to it. Mm-hmm. It was broadly, broadly traditional. I did experiment with, I got quite well to start off with on the form its function thing, because I actually took a brief, and I produced six different ways of interpreting that, uh, with six different visual outcomes just to say no there is no oh, there is no um absolute that went quite well and then i said well there's another one which is doing it traditionally and that didn't go well at all no. and robert Payne, who was a head of canterbury at the time my external examiner forced them to pass me uh, literally forced them to pass me i knew i had what happened afterwards uh, he, and he managed to get me a rome scholarship so total transformation i mean from being Nearly failed to entering this very important international uh, institution uh,
0: and, and in Rome, you sort of encountered the classical tradition in its original state, I suppose, almost like a grand tour
1: and uh, well, sort of uh, my original, my original studies in urbanism actually was, was the transformation of the, of the imperial city to the medieval city I see. Uh, I, my, my, what i'd written actually was was uh, my thesis for which, which I got the Bannister Fletcher Prize um was on on the role of of randomness and chance
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and um uh, the idea that the chaos of the dark ages turned out... so anyway that was my subject but of course i saw classicism in its raw form um and also saw it as uh, also because i had a lot of interest in the dark ages and 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 um the eighth and ninth century I also saw how it was reinterpreted or taken on, how it evolved um, from what we call Augustan architecture, which is the thing we're really interested in, it seems, but actually transformed itself dramatically during the Roman Empire and then on into what we call the Dark Ages and on into the Romanesque. And these, are, these people all believed that they were actually producing um, Roman architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, so that also gave me a very particular evolutionary view of, of classicism not as some fixed thing done by you know taken from Palladio or taken from uh, um, Brunelleschi or, or, or my namesake or whatever or, mm-hmm. or, or, that actually it's a much more complex problem which is still an issue actually I still have this issue with fellow classicists who who see it in purist terms and I really don't yes my, my interest
0: is... In Gothic architecture has that about it as well, where you, you, you're you ascribing to an entire epoch, which lasted tha- nearly a thousand years, no, 500 years, uh, a single name and therefore a single identity. And in fact, it, of course, is transformative. And if you actually stop and look for a 2nd at, say, for example, a Gothic cathedral, you, you realise that there's 500 years of building right in front of you and um, still going. I was at Canterbury Cathedral recently and they're still doing it. Actually, the building transforms and changes. But it was a point that you made in your in your book um, that I want to come back to that you touched on at the beginning that I think is in- incredibly important to the, cl- the description of the contemporary use of classical forms in architecture and c- classical aesthetics, um, which is this idea of a, pr- a-, a story of progress in architecture. And you mentioned how this idea of a kind of linear story that's traceable um, is really false. It's sort of, an I think you say it's a 19th century, 18th, 19th century invention, a sort of modernist, essentially, the invention of linearity in, in
1: the face of, in, in opposition
0: yeah. to a kind of more synthetic, I suppose, Idea. Well, I think that,
1: yes. I think the yes is the, the, the idea. Well, it's a Marxist idea, really, it, it, and it was an Enlightenment idea. There was a thing called progress, mm. uh, and you kind of move forward. And because the Marxist one was, which, which, which was, the, it was it was going in a particular direction, mm. uh, and that direction was inevitable. You know, it was unavoidable. That's where you were going, uh, and that was called progress. And um, it's that idea is still out there. Um, the idea. I, I think it was an interesting historical idea. And I, I think this is a historical theory, <clears throat> which is essentially false. Um, um, I mean you can demonstrate it's false because it's, you know, manner. Uh, is that if you if you study history, um, and one of the things you very generally concentrate is on is the difference between different periods. Mm. So you say Gothic, you identify it, has got pointed arches, therefore it's different. Uh, they, they, I didn't think they saw it that way, but it's not a matter um uh and then so you concentrate on differences and so you begin to believe that the thing that defines your period the only key authentic thing that defines your period is its difference from the previous periods mm-hmm. so if you believe that is the only true representation of your time therefore to be of your time you have to be different mm. and this becomes a sort of uh a, a sort of uh, a tread treadmill you go on you know you say, I've got to be. i got to keep being different, or I'm not authentic. I'm not of my time, hmm. and um, it's it's an historical theory. It's very prevalent. I mean, people tell me I'm not of my time, and of course I am. I'm talking to you now, <laughs> and, and um, you know, I say I'm not. I'm not a ghost. No, 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 I'm not. <laughs> I am the real thing, and I and I actually do stuff, and people ask me to do stuff, and therefore I do stuff. Hmm. So that that idea is is actually the core idea of modernism. It's part of the Enlightenment. Is um, uh, and it's it's a kind of marxist theory as well it all rolled together so so you, you um as a, a historical theory but the truth is that um uh, um, uh, um one of the early essays i wrote was the, the issue of revival hmm. is that revivals are constantly taking place you're constantly back referring because you, the past is all you've got you've got anything else hmm. um and my, my my one of my favorite things i use in my lectures is illustrations of people predicting the future Mm. Um, mm. And how absolutely wrong they almost always are, mm. and they're always recognisable uh, at the time that the vision of the future was produced, because those visions of the future belong to the present in which they were produced. Yes. Uh, and the other thing is that we're also a- a- always back referring; we're always seeking some sort of justification in history. Uh, and, 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 and you know, the, you know Nicholas person did it. With, you know, pioneers. I think it was called Pioneers of Modernism, and then it became Pioneers of of Modern Design. Um, They were actually seeking, so we we must have a history. So we've got to find ourselves a history. And the favourite one is Boise, who, 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 um, who, uh, they all, everyone said, oh, well, we're really like Voisey only with flat roots in the did horizontal windows. And, mm-hmm. and they actually claimed to this in the 30s at the time. And Boise was really quite annoyed by it. <laughs> uh, in, in quite a so humorous way, he wrote this letter saying, well, I did think of suing you all for libel, but I really can't be bothered. This is com- this is complete nonsense. But still to this day, this idea that Boise is some sort of proto-modernist. Mm-hmm. And nothing, not, not, Boise could think, think of n- nothing that interested him less so yeah. the, the the idea that just you know we all live with the past because there isn't anything else yeah uh, there's the present the present which is this infinitesimal moment and we have to use the past to project ourselves in the future yes and you make this you 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 quote saint augustine
0: on this um, about how all all we ever do is see either the future the past or the present from the present and everything therefore is interpreted in that way and I suppose I suppose that's what and and then yes you're very funny examples I mean that this issue of sci fi for example sci fi and contemporary architecture um which always I always think makes architecture look very dated when it tries to adopt the sci fi, because it's another point you make in your book about the time it takes to make architecture means that the the cultural epoch is very often over by the time the building actually gets built. So you end up getting dated looking sci fi buildings, which are based around science fiction from 10 years previously, if not more. Because the architect is inspired and get, learns their their craft and their, develops their kind of design philosophy in their early 20s. And it's only when they're 50 that they actually get the opportunity to realise this thing. So you get Zaha Hadid. I mean, Zaha Hadid is essentially doing punk music. It's, it's, it's essentially the Sex Pistols. But it's 30 yeah. years before she gets to build it. And by which time, I don't know if it's that relevant anymore
1: But i think the science fiction one is interesting <laughs> because there's science fiction is now now a, a a literary genre a recognized literary genre yes but if you, this was an interesting thing that came up because i decided obviously i was in with time i have to decide how people thought about the future and mm-hmm. science fiction is a very good model the more i looked into it was more interesting it was because um if a rough history i mean people say it's Started with Frankenstein, Mary Shelley, but that's really a Gothic novel with electricity. Um, it, it's um, really started with Jules Verne and and um, um, uh, and uh, the time machine and, and H.G. Wells, and, so and that was kind of steampunk. You know, it was kind of technology based. And um, uh, and then they knew they they criticised one another for getting their science wrong and so on. Mm-hmm. And then in, in the interwar period. Um, it became a sort, of, a sort of pulp fiction genre in the United States. I mean, it was a comic thing, and, and these, these, little, these, these books, novels were produced and called pulp fiction because of the lousy paper they printed it on. Mm-hmm. And they invented the word science fiction, actually, in the 1930s. And then after the Second World War, it became a literary genre and, and became very well established and so on and so on. And people started to study it. One of the key people studied, with a man called Suvin. Uh, and they tried to define what it was that, that made science fiction. It was very interesting. It was it was two things. Uh, it was um, um, uh, uh, it was the novum, they called it, the new thing, uh, and disjunction, which came from Brechtian um, theater history, uh, theater um, theory, uh, modernist theater. Very interesting. But if you actually p- put that alongside modernism, it has a very similar trajectory. You get this sort of early interest in technology, late 19th, early 20th century, it then becomes a minority activity in the 1920s and 30s, and then becomes an established um, genre uh, mm-hmm. in the post-war. You can't pursue it too much further than that. Mm-hmm. But it, it's very mm-hmm. interesting. The idea, uh, the two ideas, the novum, the entirely new thing, um, and disjunction both exist in modernism. Is you've got to produce something new, and it's got to be different from the from the past. Mm-hmm. So that still exists. Mm-hmm. But the key thing about it, the novum is it only lasts for a short period of time and very very quickly becomes uh, familiar. So the idea that you've got to shock and produce something completely different is, a, is an infinite, uh, infant- and even if you're, I like your point, is you know, that, you know, it's, it's actually it's what you learned when you were in your twenties and your fifties, you're still doing it. It's stale already, mm. but it's going to be stale anyway, um, even, after, even, if even you know, 20 years after you've done it, because it just become familiar. Mm. So it's, it's a false objective really.
0: Yes. And, and furthermore, I think the, the way that architecture works as a professional culture, as, a, as an enterprise, is that that which is avant-garde is, um, and this is a point made by the architectural um, writer Donna Cuff, wow. uh, the, the, the discrepant, as she calls it, the discrepant practices is enfolded back into the center. And, it, and, and the discrepancy, this avant-garde-ness, this um, critical quality is actually permitted by the cultural centre. So even when it's being naughty, it's actually performing the role that the centre, the mainstream, wants it to perform. Which is, and and that mainstream obviously now is is a kind of generic commercial modernism. But I wanted to talk more about this idea of of um, time and authenticity. So neoclassicism presents a lot of. Issues for, for the architecture student, for the architectural connoisseur, um, uh, because it it seems to be of a time past, and I and I um, and it seems to be something to do with it. It has become politically, it, it, at least for architect for the architectural kind of discourse, become politically associated with certain um, movements um, and um, has had its sort of its name sullied in that way. But I just wanted to, uh, to ask you about this issue of authenticity and whether there is an inherent authentic architecture and how classical architecture, traditional architecture relates to that. Is, is, there, a, some a, kind think... of, is there some kind of true architecture that transforms over time that neoclassicism therefore is kind of subverting or ignoring or doing something
1: wrong well no <laughs> i think the issue of the authenticity is it's a complete it's a chimera. i mean you know how can something be inauthentic if you're doing it it's just not possible yeah. um uh yeah my, my favorite one is, is the rebuilding of war because in, in in conservation this is a big issue actually mm-hmm. you know all the unesco charters and thing about being authentic The nara charter for authenticity uh, they really, you know, rack themselves up with this. And um, it's also part of that basic modernist theory is that every period is different. Therefore, you've got to keep that difference. And actually, the curious thing about it is, is that there is a sort of conspiracy, um, if you like, with with that, that view of history and conservation. Is You've got to keep past authenticity to show that what you're doing is different and therefore authentic. Mm. Um, my, my favorite example is the rebuilding of warsaw because warsaw was, was the central warsaw was destroyed um systematically um, um, uh, before the germans left and um as it happens the the school of architecture had kept had actually you've been I mean, in the 1930s have been recording it very accurately and they actually buried their, their their records and they dug them up again and based on photographs and based on these drawings they rebuilt the central warsaw to which to this day is a the tourist attraction, but of course it's not authentic because it's all it's all re- reconstruction, mm. and it looks. A lot of people go there, won't realise actually that what they're looking at is almost all the 1940s-50s reconstruction. So, is this authentic? Well, ironically, uh, UNESCO actually made it a World Heritage Site, and they're very worried about authenticity, mm. um, as they said, it's a very good example of post-war reconstruction. So, it's authentically inauthentic. Yes. You know, you're kind of locked into this sort of bizarre idea that, that you can be authentically inauthentic. Um, and of course, when you look at things in the past, um, you know, um, uh, this was really not of anybody, people really weren't concerned about this. You know, mm. you stuck noses back on statues, you know, because yeah. obviously that was, they originally had noses. And of course, now you take them off because it's not authentic. But it is authentic because they put it on in the 18th century. So that's authentically and authentic, and so you get locked into this sort of mad thing that you can, can act it 's actually possible not to be authentic and do something now yeah um, it's, it's a it 's a complete chemo um, and, um, and and do, course, you it's, do you
0: think do you think it 's used as a way of kind of uh, uh, you know in a way of kind of retaining a prestige to to um, to modernism um, elevating its its value its cultural value above neoclassicism by saying well we're authentic and neoclassicism is inauthentic and if you want something that's culturally valuable authenticity is a value that we have.
1: It's part of that history theory, I mean, you say that it's not authentic because people doing it in the past, well, Mm -hmm. of course. And my favourite other one is Mies van der Rohe's Barcelona Pavilion, which, of course, is completely inauthentic. It's a facsimile. Mm. Um, people go there and worship it as Mies van der Rohe, but actually it's a facsimile. It's made well, I
0: mean, it's, it's, it's entirely accepted within art, isn't it, already? Carl uh, yeah. uh, andres equivalentate, that stack of bricks, mm-hmm. is not the same stack of bricks. In fact, yeah. they don't ship those bricks around the world when they want to recreate Carl andres equivalentate they simply get some bricks and put it in the shape of... So, so there's, there's some idea at the heart of the artwork that the idea supersedes and transcends. Yeah,
1: the, the actual the physical fabric. Yeah. It's interesting. We have this debate. There is this common debate in, 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 um, in the people who practice classical architecture. It's, it's what I call the sash window debate. Is that you know you've got to put sash windows in, or it's not an authentic classical building. This is nonsense, of course, because they don't they only have them in in Holland, um, United States, Portugal, and, and uh, other places. Other classical buildings don't, you know. They, so why why is why is this authentic? And a lot of people actually believe that it is. Uh, this, you know, I mean, I, I have this debate all the time. Mm. Uh, so you know, equally well that you when you produce a classical building, it has to be. Um, uh, um, period specific, so you can't mix things up. Mm. You know, you can't, but because you get getting a real problem there, because you know, how do you mix up central heating and um, uh, and something which did, you know which was would, would, <laughs> central heating wasn't invented, mm. and so on and so on. So uh, that debate actually exists within those uh, the, the, within those classical architectures. They believe that the way you test the authenticity of something is that it it it, it actually is is authentic to a particular period and I call that a reproduction hmm. reproduction is authentic because i, I manir with authenticity but I have that as I said at the beginning I have this more evolutionary view hmm. is that it's it's there to be developed hmm. but I, I think of course the, the the argument you come up with then is well if you can change it so much you know um, how can you know how can you tell that the person is literally You know what, what makes a good classical building what doesn't and the answer which I've evolved over time on this one is that if you if you're fluent in a language and we're speaking in English and we're fluent in English, um, if you hear somebody else speaking that language and they're speaking in a strange way, you know, pretty much if they're doing that because they've been creative with the language or because they can't speak it properly. Mm. Uh, and that's the closest I can get to it, you know, uh, um, uh, in the sort of postmodern period, I remember working with somebody in Terry Fowle's office who, who, who was drawing upside down balusters and, and he was very pleased with himself. And, he, and I said, these are upside down. And he said, yes, that's because I'm being original. Well, I said, they did that actually in the 17th century and he was very disappointed. Uh, so, you know, the idea, that debate rages, it, it rages as well and actually it's quite common in, in the um, traditional architecture, classical architecture field and I, I'm a, something of an outrider on that one.
0: Yes, yes. Uh, So this idea of, I mean, you do get even that discussion around authenticity um, in, in the work of people like Michael Hopkins, isn't it, where there's this idea of material being, having integrity to the materials and that you've got to therefore, you know, if you're going to build a building that looks like it's made of brick, it actually has to be made of load bearing brick and having a steel frame and a brick skin on the outside is somehow, again, inauthentic and therefore does something it's sort of immoral there's a moral content to this discussion which i find i've always found very interesting
1: I, it's I, also uh, shared by people like quinlan terry he believes the same thing it, it, uh, and there is that the what i call constructional fundamentalism mm-hmm. which, which straddles um, um traditional architecture and uh, and modernism uh, it, is that in fact uh, you know the fact that Romans put you know, thin bits of marble onto brick buildings made to look like marble. That seems to have been forgotten somewhere in this process. That, that mm. I and mean, uh, Dimitri Porphyrios comes up with this. As say, indeed does Leo Krier. Is it, but we, but we know very well that these people, in the end, uh, particularly Dimitri Porphyrios, produces steel frame buildings that he clads in brick. I mean, you you. you one might be realistic about this? But but there is that idea that the the, the I say constructional fundamentalism, and it it, it it's, it's something that modernists and in fact actually. Interestingly, um, um, uh, I, I remember I did a talk on an on office building I did in Piccadilly, which is basically got stone, but it's stone attached to concrete and so on, uh, to the um, uh, to an organisation that deals with offices. And they were, all the architects there were, you know, routine modernists. And they were happier with Quinlan Terry's view that it had to be load-bearing brickwork than they were with my view is that Actually, this is just a this is an this is a, an expression you can do in whatever way you like, whatever it moves. They were more comfortable because that kept A, they shared the construction of fundamentalism, and B, it kept a distance. I was in I was invading their territory by saying, actually, these are big precast panels that are covered in stone and so on and so on. Um, because it 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 kind of pulled the rug out from their argument that, you know authenticity meant you had to design in this particular way hmm. um they said, well actually classical architects do the same thing but of course they're out of date and they're impractical and they end up with two foot thick walls at the bottom and so on and so on." So we're doing the thing now so it's they were uncomfortable because i was straying into their territory i'm quite they're quite happy when you're out there you know producing reproductions um hmm. but the minute you steal into it takes away their argument that this is the way you have to do it
0: yes I mean there is something also about the whole de- debate about material integrity which is to do with cost uh, in that having integrity to material I mean steel frame building modernism as a whole is a very cheap form of architecture and uh, and is reflective of I suppose uh, the spread of architecture into everyday life its role its increasing impact as a discipline on on things it it I suppose in response to population growth and um, the requirement for ubiquitous high standards of living and things like that, modernism is cheap as chips. Whereas material integrity—if you're going to build a stone building to look like a stone build, to, to actually be a stone building—you've got to pay some serious money. I was looking at the—I was looking at the stonemasonry work of a, a, a chap you might know of called Andre Vrona, who's based, hmm. um, who, who does a lot of Quinlan Terry's. Um, monumental masonry. He's based. Oh, I know. America.
1: I know exactly. Yeah, he, he's
0: he's quite a purist,
1: actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And and his work, I mean, it's it's extraordinary uh, level of stuff. I mean, look at his Instagram account. The, so the sizes of the stuff he's doing is pure stone as well. And you think, well, that that is only amenable really to to a
1: very very elite yeah. set of people. Yes, I have a particular view about this. Uh, the interesting thing is this same office building that, that I produced the, the uh, there is a, a a square meter um price guide for mm. producing buildings in locations different locations mm-hmm. and this building which is a classical building was precisely within that price guide
0: mm.
1: and allies and morrison produced a scheme for the same site and their scheme came up within that price guide too so actually there wasn't any great difference in price yeah. at all and um i think what the interesting thing is it's, it's rather like um um, uh, there was a moment, you know, when, in, in the twenties and thirties, when um, actually producing a stripped-down building um, uh, kind of kind of uh, um, uh, blew the idea that you had to ap- apply decoration. It was a proper building, mm. and then once it went down that route, you can never quite recover because it, it could still be great architecture, but actually it was stripped down, therefore it was very cheap. But um, at the same time uh the thing about uh, about traditional design and let 's use the example of classical design um is it 's about it 's just about as much as what you take off as what you put mm. on mm. Um, you know you, you if you 're actually designing the building you, you don 't cover it with columns you don 't you know there isn 't a Corinthian capital everywhere you can actually actually have virtually none of that mm. i mean a lot of Georgian houses have none of that, but what they have is the, the, the you, you and was, they are you 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 can actually strip it off or you can add it back on again. You can add it or subtract it. And when I talk to my clients, I say you know basically I'm designing a building for you, and I can turn the volume up or down. Hmm. Um, I can turn the volume up and I can give you loads and loads of decoration because that's what you want, uh, or I can turn it right down and have practically none. Um, and of course a lot of thirties um, buildings were like that actually. Any you know usually the last thing to go was the corners. Um, and, um, you know, uh, particularly the Swedish classical building, like, that whole culture of stripping things down was very common at that time. So you can produce very, very cheap buildings in, in, in classical design. It just is that you turn the volume down.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, of course, you do that in design anyway. So, you know, uh, how do you emphasize the entrance, for example? You emphasize the entrance by turning the volume up on the entrance. That's what you mm. do. You know, you just put more on, you take less off elsewhere. And it's that kind of balancing act. But the point is, because it is inherently familiar, mm. uh, the, when you take it off, it's implied. You know, you, you, know, you, you yeah. kind of mentally know you can add it on. You know, mm-hmm. so if you didn't, I did this in my, my original book on classical architecture. I took a building and I took a room and I, I gradually stripped them down. So basically they were just openings.
0: I think this is really, really interesting. There's a couple of, the- I mean, obviously, classical architecture gets, or traditional architecture gets ir- sort of um, vilified in the end by this idea of ornamentation being superfluous. And in some way, I mean, it's the thing that's not talked about with regards Adolf Luce and his ornament is cr- ornament and crime, is this idea, in fact, associating ornamentation with primitivism.
1: Oh, it's very and, racist, and
0: and, it's and and yeah, so there is a, definitely a, a racialist quality
1: to to, to his. Um, but what Lou um, said was was unbelievable. You know, in fact, now that racism is a significant issue, nobody quotes them, gives a full quote. You know, because he, he was being incredibly racist.
0: About it. Yes, so, so but I think that's really interesting. That that if for for neoclassical or traditional architecture, there's this issue of um, ornament, which constitutes a problem for modernism and i'm I've, I've never quite worked it out because for me <clears throat> architecture's spatial content is part of its ornamentation and as you say therefore adding details figurative details here and there or, or or symbolic details doesn't seem to me to be much more as you say, it's about turning the volume up do you uh, uh, but I, I love this I, I love this idea of what classical architecture or classical architecture does is produce familiarity and that and that has a a natural relationship to the way that people expect architecture to look so i'm not talking about um the guggenheim clients the rockefeller clients i'm talking about ordinary people who perhaps don't spend that much time thinking about architecture they see classical buildings as being normative actually it's the it's modernist it's two, buildings
1: that are anti-normative. There are two strands here because you, you produce enough of them, they become normative. But mm. there are two strands here. Um, uh, 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 one of them is ornamentation. It is, it, uh, it, what uh, ornament is additional material put mm. onto something for effect? Mm. That's what it is in the end. Now, it is no, no, uh, you can have abstract ornamentation. You can have representational ornamentation. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, there is. Other than the most elementary shed, um, all buildings have ornamentation. If you produce a window which has more material on it than it it actually absolutely routinely at its absolute minimal state has, that's ornamentation. Mm -hmm. So you're always ornamenting buildings. I mean, you know they're completely unornamented building i mean you know i mean sheds do exist and, and that's they are unornamented but actually most architects don't want to do that they want to add something to that shed decorated shed or or actually just just make it do stuff with it which is kind of artistic and and, and creative and that's ornament in the end it's ornament. it's all, all ornament mm. but i also I like it a... of... sorry
0: carry on okay no i'm I just going to say i also really like this idea that the absence or the subtraction of ornament constitutes a form of ornamentation insofar as it signifies its own absence
1: and people, and
0: people knows know that or, or, or
1: intuitively yeah they, they, that, that's that's the other that was the key point in a way is that um is expectancy and therefore familiarity and this this mm. takes you to tradition is that is that it, it's it, it's it's you're operating within a, it within within your cultural traditions and they, mm-hmm. those cultures vary and they vary from place to place and they, they vary you know um uh, quite widely but they are there and that's what we exist in. We, we 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 all exist in our cultural traditions mm-hmm. um not all of us we can't avoid it um and very often these things are symbolic you know so uh, i mean i think the interesting you know in, in our tradition more broadly um uh, there's two aspects of this well, one is that they, we all have them and uh, we all have them every day i mean the, the, the language is is, is, a, is a traditional medium mm. and in fact it can't be understood unless it was traditional you, you, can, you can't make it up from scratch because if you don't know one understand it there's kind of no point mm. uh, and as a result of that it contains a richness which it brings in from the past and it also evolves so uh we all have traditions and, and traditions have really three sort of Broad categories, in my opinion, one is they have to have an ancestry. Uh, they don't have to have a real ancestry; they can have a made-up ancestry, but they have to have an ancestry. But making it up it has to be convincing. You know, it mm-hmm. has to be, it has to have some kind of historical resonance. Um, it, it it has to be identifiable. I mean, you have to be able to see it. And it. if if you can't, uh, it's actually um, um, uh, well. I've said to me, oh, I do tradition too, but it's invisible. I said, well, it's not tradition. <laughs> no, you can't see it. It isn't. It, it's 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 a symbolic activity, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it belongs. It's one of the things by which a community identifies itself. Mm. Um, communities identify themselves by by their traditions. Uh, I mean, it's very interesting that that um, in in immigrant communities, everywhere, I mean, um, is that that often enough, language survives less than than, than family ceremonies, weddings. Funerals and all those sorts of things. Hmm. Now these things have great symbolic importance, and they are, they identify the community from which the person comes. Hmm. Uh, any Christian communities, or Jewish communities, or Hindu communities, or Muslim communities, and they identify themselves by as a, a, a series of traditions. Hmm. So we all have that you know, they're all there. Um, but they relu- they they, relu- they have to have ancestry. Hmm. And of course, the interesting thing is, as I said earlier, is that modernism is very anxious to discover its 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 ancestry. Uh, and to present its ancestors jimmy's mean, ahadi you know with malovich she, she thought that Malévich's work had not really been fully you know fully developed and she in her early career was saying you know, that that's what i'm doing um uh all sort of modernist theories don't say well i am starting from completely really from scratch they locate themselves in often slightly mythical um uh, m- mythical past uh, and so let's say traditions are universal mm. so whose traditions If you're doing a building for people, I mean, if you're not doing it for other architects, most people, most architects do things for other architects. Most people are interested in their peer group rather than anybody else. That's the way it is. But architects do things that are out there in the community. So whose traditions are important? Uh, Are they your architectural traditions? So if you wanted to win an award for a um, building, make sure it's A, got a flat roof and B, got glass walls. And if it's a house, make sure it looks like the Barcelona Pavilion, because you'll almost certainly get a walk, because they get, they get rolled out all the time for those. Because the architectural community recognizes this. They said, Ah, this is one of ours. Mm. So it's part of our traditions. We give given an award. So is that important? Because it's important to architects, or is are the traditions of the population into which they're putting it important? Well, I think the answer is obvious, actually, but I think I think you know that, that most professional groups are really interested in their in their peer group. The architects should be interested in the traditions of the of 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 the of everybody else. The other ninety nine point nine percent of the population are going to have something to do with it. Mm. So it's, you know, and so, and this goes back to what's currently emerging in, in British planning and the National World Design Code. That that's what it's trying to say at the moment. Mm. But so, I, I, once you've established that everybody has traditions, which I think is the important thing, and I, I think any sociologist can tell you that um is that the issue is whose traditions are appropriate yeah. and that becomes a good sensible moral judgment without getting involved in you know whether it's got corinthian columns on it or not
0: yes yeah, so that, that I, I don't want to i have i know i haven't got you for much longer now there's two further questions i want to ask i suppose one is the the role of tradition in a Say multicultural or hybrid society. So, how if if we're talking about representation of traditions and, and classicism does a good job of representing a certain strand of um, tradition within, say, for example, the British or Western European culture? But you're dealing in a in a community that has not got that uh, cultural heritage, ethnic heritage, whatever it is. Then, uh, then what is the relevance of this, or how does the how does the classical architect yeah, that's a better question. How does a classical architect operate in the context of um, demographic diversity?
1: It's interesting. I mean, an uh, example I don't think has in India at the moment. And um, um, uh, I mean, India is very interesting uh, because actually what Britain did in the 19th century has become part of its own tradition in an interesting mm-hmm. way. Um, uh, and hybridity is, is normal I mean, classical architecture, its its in hybridity and will continue to do so um i mean interesting that one house i did is actually a deliberate hybrid between mughal architecture and european classical it was a different relationship i mean it's a very clear relationship um uh but interestingly uh, my my favorite example is is kerala um in, in um uh in southwest india which has a christian population going back to the second century it's not what britain introduced about 30 percent of the population are christian but when um raj was established we we built gothic revival churches and so somewhere along the line the keralyn christians decided that this gothic revival was going to do with them uh, was a christian type hmm. and so they've now taken it on um and it's still producing these these Keralan, um hybrid buildings and it's it's their own style so hmm. um yeah it, it's, it, it's it's a, it's an interesting issue um i worked in beirut and and um I, most people go to Berrizo, Muslim architecture. You know, looking at and doing architecture, looking out of an airplane window, saying, "Oh, well, you know, they got these pointed arches." Therefore, if I stick those on my glass wall building, that'll make it local. But working with uh, a Lebanese architect, I realise there's a lot of subtlety, a lot of things that one really wouldn't understand. So, as I say, I, I think I, I and this is why I rather say traditional rather than classical. Mm. Classical is, a, is, a, is a, all, all classical architecture is traditional, but not all traditional architecture is classical. Mm. And that's why I also want to go through the, the evolutionary process, um, uh, where the, there is no real purity in this. There is, is only literacy. There's mm. only understanding and literacy. So I, I, it's, it's, it's not an issue. Although I have to say, well, the house I'm doing at the moment, and you know, I made it bad, uh, they specifically wanted a, a British or European classical building. And I said, you know, don't don't you want a Don't you want a Gujarati type? And he said, you know, I said, no, I didn't. And all the Indian architects who I'm, you know, discussing it with, they're quite uneasy about this. But that's what my client wants. So that's what that's what we're going to produce. Um, so uh, as I said, if once you have an evolutionary aspect to this, and once you, you know, don't have this purist it's not difficult mm. because you're, all you're doing is you're just bringing in other traditions as as necessary.
0: Yes. Well, that's really, really interesting. I could talk to you for for hours and hours, but I wanted to ask one final question about the process of of designing in the classical tradition. And I think for 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 people, there's an assumption, for example, that hand drawing plays a greater role in the classical design or traditional design model, and therefore, if you're no good at hand drawing. Um, which I don't believe anybody is no good; they just haven't practiced enough. Um, th- then you can't be a you know you can't do traditional design, and that you know the computer and modernism go hand in hand, or the com- computer and contemporary architecture. So I kind of wanted to uh, to understand how you go about designing things, and then also the way that you conceive of the making process as well. Now, if you were a purist, a, a constructional fundamentalist, as you call them, um, there would be something specific i guess about that but but your hybrid or your your synthetic approach tends must mean that you have a kind of i suppose synthetic approach to the technologies of architectural
1: design as well Well, you know in designing buildings this is rather trite i suppose but obviously the plan is a really important thing If the plan doesn't work forget it Mm. Um, and of course you can structure your plan in certain ways and you know, I produce very asymmetrical buildings. And I produce very symmetrical buildings. You know, the, 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 all of these things can be done if the client wants a very symmetrical one. You can do it. The, if the plan doesn't work, nothing works. Mm. You know, so that's, that's fundamental. We all share that. Uh, but the interesting thing is, 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 is sheer constructional ignorance in the architectural profession. It is really, really frightening. Um, uh, um, uh, I just, I, 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 I work. Uh, I just. Uh, a very good example, actually. Um, I, 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 it wasn't a lecture I was giving, but one of my colleagues was giving, where the 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 the, the architect in this particular case didn't like the idea of sills projected uh, in front of the thing because he wanted an absolutely sheer front to the building. So uh, when you got the sills of the windows, he had this he had this brilliant idea, which he said Eric Parry invented. With, uh, I must speak to Eric about this sometime, where actually the water falls back towards the window. You think, you know, hang on. Um, and then you put a little gutter in front of the window with little drain pipes that go out. And you think, I mean, am I in a madhouse? Um, but actually, this is it. serious stuff. You know, I feel like Arthur Sainter guy, I do suggest you check your, um, your your liability insurance because this is going to fail.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and actually, in the end, you just make buildings that work and stand up. Hmm. And if you've got to add stuff to them, you add stuff to them. And, you know, if you've got decoration, you add decoration. But, you know, the thing about architects is that is that we we concentrate on our differences hugely. Mm. But actually 99% or 95% of it is exactly the same. We all have clients that don't pay. Um, we all um, have contractors who don't produce things on time. Uh, but we really should understand I, I was talking to a, a member of staff of, um am uh, working about details he was producing i said well just start off with how it's made you know <laughs> then take it from there don't 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 make it into some abstract uh, uh, abstract essay in something start off with how it's made buildings have to have damp root causes you have to get the, carry the water off buildings that is absolutely number one and if he doesn't do that so these sill this sill detail was completely bonkers yeah and um, for the sake of not having things projecting, you mean you didn't have the ability or imagination to design a good building that kept water out of it? I mean, come on! You know, it's not surprising architects get a bad reputation. Um, uh, you know, it's so uh, that's that's what we do: is we make buildings that for people, where the plans work and they fit into where they go, uh, and they function, and people like them, and they can be constructed. Uh, with do you, but
0: book. do you sit down and draw the building by hand? And then and and when you sell the building to the client, when you put when you present it, when you do that, that miraculous thing that architecture architects do, which is persuade people to part with vast sums of money uh, on the promise five years down the line of a giant, beautiful thing. But all they get is a picture that's this big. Do you you present them with hand drawings and then and then everything else is done in the contemporary? Well, you present.
1: Well, you it depends on the client. I mean, one of my favorite things, which I really like to do, is to sit down with the client and a pencil and a piece of paper and design it with them. Mm. And I'll work through the plan with them. We'll try out options. I'll sketch little elevations and so on. I mean, it's just a very effective way of doing it because then the client feels that, that they have partly designed it. Mm. And they have. And, it's, and that's, that I, 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 uh, that, that's a technique. You have to have certain drawing skills to do that. Well, very, in some cases, I, can't, I don't do that. It depends. It'll, it'll come out as a CAD drawing. Mm. I mean, CAD mm. is only a means of recording information more or less efficiently. Um, uh, it just is that, it is that hand drawing actually at design stage is often very much quicker and more flexible. Mm. It just is quicker yes. and more flexible. Yes. Uh, I have a story about this, which I'm sorry, I can bang on about this. Uh, uh, the, I, I have to thing called the Architecture Club. and We ran a, um, a, 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 a sort of debate on hand drawing, Mm -hmm. and um uh and also i mean uh, my old office i ran life drawing classes you know actually because actually drawing is about visual acuity that's what it is. you know and uh, anyway so uh, we ran this debate it was interesting debate most of the major firms london firms were there uh, and we had three people producing drawings while the debate went on one of them was um, uh, George Salmon Smith. One of his, his his great tricks is the you know, there are lots of videos of this. They're worth looking at. Is producing enormous drawings, you know, in sort of time delay, um, usually copies of other drawings. And we had Will also, um with a, with a four inch paintbrush and chucking paint at a canvas. And then we had this Chinese guy who was who was supposed to be the number one. Um, uh, um, uh, virtual presenter in in, in cad or, or in, in computer, computer graphics and he was producing these amazing floating images this is all taking place and after a while the first thing was that just about every one of these major offices was running life classes or something like it because they all recognize the role of drawing and visual acuity that's all it is you know if you draw if you draw a face you know and it looks really wonky then you're obviously really not looking properly mm. um and um so but anyway after a while we noticed this guy who was doing this thing a little book and we said what's in the book oh he said i draw it first. I, I, <laughs> that so I, draw, I draw it first you know I do a little <laughs> sketch before I... <laughs> So, obviously not the complete floating thing but this is very revealing in fact because it's, there's something isn't really very elementary it's just a connection between something you're doing down here you're looking at up there and so on yeah uh, and there's no reason why you can't do that on a screen, or, or but for some reason, and this may this may pass. For some reason, this 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 direct connection becomes disconnected because there's another uh, digital process taking place that takes onto the screen, yeah. and it has its own disciplines. You know, uh, it, for example, if you're doing a, if I'm doing a housing layout, I'm not moving little rectangles around. Um, I'm actually doing something much more flexible. And of course, in, you know, people like Zaha Hadid, who, who, um, who use parametricism, which is a fairly legitimate thing, just to produce bizarre shapes. I mean, that's what the parametricism did. And, mm-hmm. and Patrick Micah writes about this extensively. Um, but it's just a tool. This is what you want to do. If you don't, don't want to produce that, don't do it. So, as I say, there's no, there's no magic about computing. There is a certain amount of magic about hand drawing just because it tends to be more efficient and it tends to you know, uh, uh, when you get to producing technical drawings and when you get to exchanging information, digital information is so much more efficient. Hmm. I mean, it's just incredibly efficient. And you're not worried really about moving things around a little bit, tying a slight angle here and so on and so on, which you can do very rapidly in hand drawing. You're not worried about that. You're transferring information efficiently, which is extremely good. Hmm. So no, you know, in, in the end, we're all doing the same thing um you know people are using cad or not using cad i would recommend hand drawing because it's a very effective and my, it's bloody brilliant with clients because you know they actually see the thing forming in front of them with a pencil mm. uh, and you can actually draw little vignettes uh, And my god they like it you know, it's, it's it's a really it's a really effective selling technique but it's also a very efficient way of working
0: Thank you very much, Robert. That was very, very interesting. I really enjoyed it.
1: Good, well, hope somebody else does too.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure they will. Okie dokie. That was great. Thank you to Robert for a fine, broad discussion. Please look in the podcast description for links to Robert's practice and writings. Share, like, follow, subscribe AS for Architecture. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Cheers.